Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Not even a month into the job and after what looked like a morning of progress, DUP leader Edwin Poots quits. Navigating the pandemic gives the government parties a small bump in the polls, but it certainly hasn't been enough to stem the rising tide of Sinn Féin. Controversial climate action legislation has been passed by an overwhelming majority. Full steam ahead for climate action in theory, but what issues remain in practice? And are the extension of powers sought by the Gardaí a cause for concern? Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. It has been an absolutely extraordinary day in Northern politics at Stormont. As Paul Given and Michelle O'Neill took up their posts as First and Deputy First Ministers, we thought that the crisis facing Northern politics had abated. Instead, in the last hour, we have learnt that the DUP's leader, Edwin Poots, after enormous pressure internally, has quit after just 20 days on the job. But what are going to be the consequences out of that, particularly for the future of the Assembly and also of the Northern Ireland Protocol? Joining us via Skype is Amanda Ferguson. So, just explain the latest development just over an hour ago. Why did Poots, why was he forced to quit? Yes, that's right. Uh, Edward Poots um, has uh, resigned as DUP leader. A statement that he issued said he's going to remain in post until his uh, successor is selected. But essentially the, the problem has been is that the party has turned on him because of his decision to go ahead and nominate Paul Given as first minister without the backing of the MLAs and the MPs and senior party figures. Why did he do that? Why did he take what now looks to be politically a suicidal move? Well, I think that there was uh, a realisation that uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic still, that there's a lot to, to uh, take care of regards health waiting lists and so on. And I think that Edwin Putz felt that because uh, the Sinn Féin uh, request for him to, a precondition for nomination was him implementing uh, Irish language by the 24th of June, because that wasn't agreed to, I think he felt that he had room uh, to, to, to bring uh, his party back into government, but unfortunately, uh, the party has turned uh, because uh, the, the UK government uh, had said that if the Stormont Assembly wasn't able to legislate for Irish language by September, that Westminster would do it in October. Um, and I think that the MLA's and the MP's objection is, is uh, devolution being circumvented. How extraordinary is that sequence of events in itself that you have a situation where Sinn Féin, which of course abstains from taking up its seats in the Westminster Parliament, goes to the British government and asks it to introduce legislation that can't be brought in at Stormont. And then on the other hand, the DUP, which swears fealty to Her Majesty's government, wants to reject that and says this should be an issue for devolution. 
Yes, that's right. It's quite a, a remarkable sequence of events, although obviously Sinn Féin is, is elected on an abstentionist ticket. But I think that uh, the feeling in the Irish language community, which goes well beyond Sinn Féin into support among SDLP, People Before Profit, Greens Alliance, um, others uh, non-aligned, and many people also within the unionist community who embrace uh, you know, their Irish identity and value the, the language very much. Uh, it was a sense that they've been waiting long enough and that you know this was something that was agreed at St Andrews maybe 15 years ago, uh, that it's something that is poisoning uh, domestic politics and that people who just want to embrace uh, the language uh, were being used as a political football. And I think it should always be made clear that while the focus is on the Irish language, that the cultural package that was negotiated and agreed between uh, the DUP and Sinn Féin and the other parties that uh, you know was brought together by Simon Coveney and Julian Smith but not only did it include Irish language legislation, but it also included provisions for Ulster Scots, which again doesn't belong to any just one community within Northern Ireland. Uh, and there were also other uh, measures within that cultural package. So it was felt that that actually was a compromise deal and it was perhaps a watered down uh, version of what the Irish language community actually wanted. Of course, this has taken a bit of attention away from the contentious issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, part of the agreement between the United Kingdom and the EU to allow for Brexit. There have been unconfirmed reports tonight that there are senior DUP members who are now considering boycotting the Assembly unless the British government ditches the Northern Ireland Protocol. What's the likelihood of that? Well, the difficulty for those who are objecting to the protocol is it's an agreement between the EU Commission and the United Kingdom government. There's not really a sense that it can be something that's scrapped overnight. Uh, certainly, there's widespread disquiet amongst uh, unionist uh, politicians and members of the public of all shades. But I think sometimes uh, the objections to it can be over-egged and there is a reluctance to admit uh, that there uh, are positive benefits of the protocol for Northern Ireland. I know that uh, certain business leaders have said, you know, we're getting a lot of calls about this. Um, and there's a sense, perhaps, that there's been a missed opportunity uh, for unionism that it could have spun this as, you know, we could be the jewel in the crown of the UK having access to, to both markets. And we know that those who object to the protocol are challenging that legally and that um, is the right and proper course uh, of action. But I think that a lot of the issues that there are around the protocol can sometimes be based around fear and perception rather than being based in reality. You know, I think that there, there's a sense amongst most people um, that certainly the, the protocol needs to be finessed, that, you know, things around the movement of some food goods and around guide dogs and pet travel and all those things are areas that could be uh, worked through. Uh, but certainly, you know, the idea that it could be something, you know, an international agreement could just be scrapped overnight doesn't seem that realistic. But if those reports are accurate, it is very concerning. You know, the, the government in Northern Ireland is extremely fragile. We're only back. Um, after a three-year absence, and then you know the the new decade, new approach uh, deal was almost a, a victim uh, of COVID as well. In that it, it there wasn't the chance uh, for you know all of the the progress to be made in, in a variety of areas within the first hundred days Amanda. of the new assembly. There's one final thing I want to ask you, and that is the future of the DUP. Given that Arlene Foster was the victim of a coup, now we've had another coup, which has taken out her replacement, Edmund Poots. Who takes control now? And what sort of DUP, what sort of size of DUP will there be? And how will it appeal to the unionist people? I think that more than likely it will be uh, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, unless uh, something uh, strange and unusual happens. Although given today, I, I wouldn't rule that out. Uh, but there is a growing sense that, that previously, while people felt that there wasn't an appetite for an election, that perhaps an election may actually be needed now uh, to try and sort of clear the decks. 
and have a fresh start. But I think all of the challenges that faced Arlene Foster, that faced Edwin Putz, are going to face whoever takes over from him. It's not within the DUP leader's gift to scrap the protocol or, uh, you know, there were some ideas around, you know, that... Arlene Foster wasn't tough enough on Sinn Féin or the Irish language or on women's reproductive rights or on LGBT rights. And on those matters, you know, the, uh, particularly the last three, uh, the, there's a sense you can't really stop the tide coming in on rights that are enjoyed by British and Irish citizens in the rest of the United Kingdom and in the rest of Ireland. Amanda Ferguson, thank you for joining us. Now, joining us also via Skype is the DUP MLA Jim Wells. And here in studio, we're joined by Fine Gael Senator Regina Doherty and Sinn Féin TD Matt Carty. But I'm going to go to you, Jim Wells, first. What the hell is going on in your party? Is this the ultimate self-sabotage? I've been at Stormont for 27 years. I have to say this is the most day in my political career. Um, I simply am shell-shocked about what has happened. Um, a complete shock in every respect. I had the highest admiration for Edwin Putz. I thought he'd made a really good leader. He had some great ideas about how to take the party forward, but also was very much in tune with the traditional roots of the DUP. And I'm absolutely flabbergasted. I can't believe what has happened in the last 12, 14 hours. Extraordinary. His decision to send Paul Given in as the First Minister, do you think was that the wrong decision? And do you think the consequences for Edwin Poots as a result of that are correct? Well, first of all, there was no objection to Paul Given at all. I mean, Paul was uh, universally approved as First Minister. That wasn't the issue. The issue was that the agreement to allow him to be nominated was only uh, secured at 1 a.m. this morning. And then the group, the DUP group at Storm was told at 11 a.m. that this was going to happen. What they'd asked for was a delay to allow people to consider the implications of doing that. And that wasn't granted. And I think that was a fundamental error of judgment. It could have been held to Monday so that people, uh, members of their party and MPs, could have given detailed consideration of the implications of going ahead to nominate a First Minister. But sometimes doesn't a leader have to act that there is a continuing COVID crisis, there's all sorts of issues in relation to health, that he wanted to get the executive up and running again so that issues could be dealt with. Yes, and that could have been done on Monday, but that only gave party members a very small window of opportunity to actually deal with this. And you haven't also considered the, the implications of the Irish language. It's very difficult uh, when you're talking to people from the Irish Republic to explain just how toxic the subject of the Irish language is to Northern Ireland unionists. I mean, we appreciate the Irish language as much as people in the Irish Republic appreciate the Orange Order. It's a very, very di divisive uh, issue where the vast majority of unionists are extremely concerned about the ongoing march of the Irish language in Northern Ireland. And the other issue that caused huge concern was the fact that when Sinn Féin didn't get their way on Irish language, they ran to Westminster a, an institution in which they don't take their seats, demanded that legislation be brought in to force this upon the people of Northern Ireland, and Westminster simply buckled. And that has huge implications for the future governance of Northern Ireland. I'll get to that in a second, but your description of the Irish language as toxic might be taken mm. by many viewers to be very offensive. It's part of the yes. identity of many people. What is your problem that you cannot understand and accept the right of people to a language as part of their identity. Yeah. I have been down to Cape Clare in, in West Cork, and I've heard Irish spoken, fluent Irish spoken, and it's a wonderful 
uh, expression of a cultural identity. The problem is here that the Irish language has been hijacked by Sinn Féin and is being used by a political weapon, as a political weapon. Indeed, the famous phrase that one of their leading lights said that every word of Irish spoken is another bullet in the struggle to free the six counties. And this is the problem. We have no problem, for instance, with Irish dancing or Irish music. There's even Irish dancing in Orange Falls. The issue is that the Irish language has been used by one party and one party alone as a political weapon. And it's time that those who regard Irish language as a cultural expression detach themselves from Sinn Féin and simply have it as a cultural expression rather than being used as a weapon against the unionist community. And that's the problem. And that's difficult to explain to, to audiences in the Irish Republic. I accept that where the Irish language is treasured by many communities in the Irish Republic. But here, it is an extraordinarily contentious issue. Matt Carty of Sinn Féin, what do you say to that, that your party has politicised the language and uses it for political purposes? No, that's not true. Um, we give political expression to a widespread demand for rights for Irish language speakers um, in the six counties. What happened last night was that the British government effectively agreed to implement a deal that they'd signed up to 15 years ago, a deal that the DUP signed up to little over one year ago and yet had refused to implement. And the leader um, of the DUP or the then leader of the DUP had indicated in recent negotiations that he had no intentions of delivering upon. So therein lies the reason why the Irish language is a political, uh, a, a political issue. Um, I was here today, um, this is the second time I was in my car when a DUP leader was exposed. I was here when Arling Foster and we were actually talking to Jim, um, Jim Wells and he was indicating that his preference would be that Edwin Poots would be the next leader of the DUP. And I had said that night that Edwin Poots will soon learn that the only way that any political leader in the North can exercise real power is by engaging on a constructive level and treating um, his counterparts within nationalism and, and within other fairness, communities did he actually as, do as that? equals. The did he actually do that? Because well, he did no, reach a deal with Sinn Féin and the British government last night. He just wasn't able to bring his party with him. Here's the difficulty. We have yet to see a political leader of unionism actually say that out loud, that they need to engage um, with Republicans and with nationalists as equals in terms of um, political power sharing. That's the only way in which power can be exercised in the, in the North. And therein lies the crucial difficulty that we see at the heart of the DUP tonight. And it's the same problem that we saw within the Ulster Unionist Party previously. So what we actually need is unionist political leaders to be honest with their own electorate in the first instance, but then to recognise that if we're going to try and deliver on the, on the real issues, as um, um, Jim would, um, would call them in relation to health services, in relation to housing, in relation to the post-pandemic realities that we all want to create, these are big seismic and challenges. They can only happen in, in terms of the, the um, devolved government on the basis of partnership and the truth of the matter is that the DUP as a party and an entity are just simply not up to that. And what about the issue of engagement because as Jim said so some people in unionism it's remarkable that you had a situation where Sinn Féin went to the British government last night and asked for it to enact in, uh, legislation. So is this a new position now for Sinn Féin that you won't be able to do things in the north so you go to the British government to do things for you? No. The political institutions in the North aren't perfect. We know that. Um, but 
until we have what we would envisage to be a better scenario, which is an all-Ireland political scenario, we work those institutions on, the, on behalf of those people who elect us and on behalf of all communities in order to deliver that. If those institutions can't deliver basic fundamental rights in relation to languages that are available in Scotland, available in Wales, available for minority languages all over the world, but are being denied by obstructionist, um, I have to um, say, prehistoric political attitudes towards um, language rights that we hear from people like Jim Wells, then Sinn Féin will go to whatever lengths it takes in order to deliver those rights because those okay, Irish well, let me speakers go back deserve to Jim no Wells less. That. So, Jim, if the Sinn Féin is willing to go and deal with the British government and engage with them, even to the extent of asking for legislation, well, is it not the position where you have to be more pragmatic and realistic in unionism and engage with people such as Sinn Féin to get deals done? And does Mr Carty believe that every word of Irish spoken is a bullet in the struggle to free Ireland, is it? Is that his view on the Irish? Is that we're meant to accept manifestation of a cultural expression? I mean, this is the problem. Where I live in Newry Morning Down, in my own local constituency, Irish is supposed to form unionist communities who don't want it. In their leisure centres, in their street signs, there is a simply a manifestation of a dominance of the Irish language over the language that everybody in Northern Ireland speaks. There's nobody in, in Northern Ireland speaks Irish as a first language. There's far more people who speak Polish or Lithuanian as their first language, and nobody speaks Irish. And it's this abuse of the Irish language, which is not prevalent in the Irish Republic, I say that, but is in Northern Ireland, that really concerns unionists. And I, my constituency, the support amongst the unionist community for a further intensification of Irish language is practically nil. Just to clarify, I think this is important. What Jim is talking about there is bilingual signage. That's the big threat to the union, as, like they have in Wales and as we have it all over the world. Regina Doherty, what's the government's position in relation to the extremes we're hearing from both sides? There is no two extremes, by the way, Matt. There is. There's, they're completely and utterly at odds that with is each not other extremes. in relation to each what, other. Let's, so let's just, no, what, happened, what happened Matt? last night Matt, was that agreements that were 15 we years old were finally implemented. Regina, There's no what's your position? Extremes. So I, don't, I think the position of the Irish government, as indeed it is the same of the British government, Westminster, is that we want um, government by consensus in Northern Ireland. And what we have, in effect, is a five-party power sharing. But what happened last night, I believe, is that both Sinn Féin um, and Brandon Lewis obviously gave far more credit to Edwin um, for the control of the party and the support of his party than he actually had. And today, it's not just... Like, I know we talk about fascinating days in politics. Today is an incredibly sad day to see two parties who are the largest parties in the power-sharing um, government of Northern Ireland at such great odds and dealing with each other with such passion over something as benign as cultural identity and the Irish It's hardly language. benign. Cultural well, identity I tell you, you is know the least would, benign thing about Northern Ireland. What would Germany. lovely to see, what would be lovely to see is equal billing and as much passion for the 300,000 people that are on the health waiting lists, for the kids in school in Northern Ireland that don't have secondary school places to go to in September, for one of the, an area that has the highest youth unemployment rates in the country, even equal billing. I'm not saying that the cultural identification isn't absolutely hugely important, it is. But those really other important issues didn't even get a hearing yesterday. They certainly weren't ever going to be something Regina. that was used. Regina, I have to, to say that's actually quite uh, pathetic and disgraceful it's, to suggest. I'm, I'm sorry, it's suggest, absolutely well, true. Well, let me tell and you, you this. Know where we are well, let me tell you this. Second, Matt, let her finish. No, then we're I will at let a you moment back where, and Amanda said it earlier on, there, there's a, an, an expectation that if we can't get this resolved in the next couple of days, that Westminster will just cause another election. And maybe that's what Sinn Fein want. Maybe that's what they'd love. 
But there's absolutely no guarantee. Well, in fairness to Sinn Féin, didn't it pull out all the stops, even by no going, as far as going to the Matt. British government to get legislation to avoid another election? Which is also hugely ironic. And I have to tell you that Jim is actually right to say that, to call that out. But there's absolutely no guarantee that there'll be another election. The last time Stormont collapsed, we had three years of devolved of rule well, from Westminster, which is absolutely not something that could be acceptable or even countenanced in Northern Ireland Matt right Carty, now. Matt your the turn on to respond. No, I have to, say, I have to say, Regina, I'm really, really disappointed in you. Um, either you You're are completely... In me all Regina, my life. I'm to my completely ignorant to the no. process that has gone on for the past number of weeks and months, or you're being disingenuously um, and, dis and purposely disingenuous. I'm so what happened, last, what happened last night? In order to break the political impasse, Sinn Féin pushed the British government to implement an agreement that they'd signed up to 15 years ago. That agreement and that um, push wasn't just coming from Sinn Féin. There are five parties in the executive, all bar the unionist parties, accepted that those agreements in relation to language needed to be addressed. The reason why we wanted that issue addressed is precisely because we are committed to delivering and resolving the issues with regard to the health services and other public services in the north. And I wish Regina was half as passionate about the health services and the housing crisis in this state as she apparently is about that in the, in the six counties, because the realities are that the Irish government, I would contend, behind the scenes would accept Sinn Féin's bona fides in respect of the negotiations. So I started my comments as saying that other political parties don't really appreciate when somebody else sticks their oar in, and I think that's fairly clear now. I am absolutely entitled to my opinion on anything in that happens on the island of this island. Of course as you are, indeed I'm are entitled you. to tell you as you're indeed wrong. Are you. yeah, but what you I'm are. saying to you is, is that there was a, a cross-play played here last night with a, a gamble that has now ultimately backfired, and that the only people that are going to suffer... Are are the millions of people that live in so Northern Ireland that potentially will not have their own devolved OK, Regina, Regina uh, you're around the, the negotiating table. What do you suggest should have been done? Well, first of all, you should have had your ducks in a row. And you certainly well, didn't. What, so both in, in what regard? I've said it already. Both no, Sinn Féin, both you, Sinn Féin answer, and Brandon Lewis obviously assumed that Edwin Poots had the support of his party and you didn't even bother to check. So where is the Irish government in this? The Sorry, government you're part of? Where, where the, was Irish the Irish government, government is, co is a co-partner to the Good Friday night. Agreement. And, well, if they weren't okay. in the negotiations, why weren't they in I the I want to get Jim Wells back uh, in because, Jim, as I referred to with Amanda Ferguson earlier, there are reports tonight that there are senior members of the DUP, people who were involved in this coup against Edwin Poots, who are now considering withdrawing entirely from the executive and the assembly if the, North, if the British government does not agree to withdrawing the Northern Ireland Protocol. Are you aware of that? Would you be supportive of that? Well, first of all, could congratulate Regina in her detailed knowledge of the Northern Ireland situation. It's very refreshing to hear that. Someone has clearly been doing their homework about the situation in Northern Ireland. I'm not aware of that, but can I say that things have moved so fast today that anything is possible. I have never known a day like it, and I've only been around since 1975, and I've never seen a day like it. So I can't pre confirm or deny what you're saying. What I do know is that the protocol is an anathema to every unionist in Northern Ireland. There is no upside to the protocol, not only from a trading point of view, but also politically, it drives a border down the middle of the Irish Sea. Sorry, it I have to stop you there for a second, because I remember Edwin Poots, even in February last year, on the issue of sausages, saying how good the deal was for the Northern Ireland farmer having access to the EU markets and the UK market. There are very clear economic benefits were available to you, and you're changing the situation now for political purposes yourself. Well, I have always been a totally opposed to the protocol, and there is there is no upside because the economic damage it's going to do, but also would 
Donegal tolerate a border between Donegal and the rest of the Irish Republic? Of course it wouldn't. And this is an absolutely fundamental constitutional point. We are part of the United Kingdom. We should not be in a position where all of our products coming from the rest of the United Kingdom are blocked or have to be tested at a border down the Irish Sea. So unionism is totally opposed to the protocol. And I think we've strong mandate to do whatever we can to, to, to ensure that that is set aside. And I think the British government, I think our own government, is actually beginning to, 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 to realise that this is an impossible situation that we're in. Regina Doherty, what can be done to solve this issue of the protocol? So I, I might have a very simplistic um, view towards this, and I want to say this in the first instance, is that I think we all recognise the concerns that the unionist community uh, and indeed businesses have around the protocol. Right? But actually, if we introduced the agreement around the SPS checks, it would probably remove 98% of the, the difficulties that we have. And where we are now is dancing on the head of a pin because we can't agree the SPS because... Sorry, just explain for people... So, so there the are photo, photosensitive checks on uh, food products coming from the United Kingdom uh, into the island of Ireland. And if we agree those, we would then agree that we're both working off the same food safety standards. And so the sausages coming from Scotland into Ireland and the ones from Ireland going into Scotland would be both created, manufactured um, by the same safety standards. And so what the EU are asking of the United Kingdom is for to say they will sign up to the EU regulations. What the United Kingdom are asking us to say is that we recognise that the British regulations are the same uh, as the EU regulations and we can't agree that. And in actual fact, why don't we just agree that they are the same when they are the same. And if we change or the United Kingdom change, well, then we'll have to talk about it again. The fundamental but we're going to argue about this for months and months and months again when the there is a solution problem here to is fix Brexit, the is Brexit. So from Sinn Féin's point of view, what we wanted in relation to a trade deal was something as close to a pre-Brexit situation as possible. The DUP wanted as hard a Brexit as possible. This is the consequence of it. And there has been attempts to mobilise opposition that isn't actually there in reality. OK, our thanks to Jim Wells. Our studio panel is staying with us. And after the break, navigating the pandemic sees a slight upturn in the polls for the government parties. But it hasn't been enough to stem the rising tide of Sinn Féin. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome back. Now, Fine Gael Senator Regina Doherty and Sinn Féin TD Matt Carty remain with us. And the Irish Times this morning had a major opinion poll which shows a majority of the electorate are satisfied with the performance of the government and also that 70% believe it has done a good job in dealing with COVID-19. 
However, when you get into the individual parties, Fine Gael has slipped back to 27% and Sinn Féin is now strongly the leading party with 31% support. And of course, when you go into Dublin as well, Regina Doherty, Sinn Féin's lead over Fine Gael is even more pronounced. How worried do you think is that going to make your leadership about the by-election, given that they have been talking about there's been a shootout between Fine Gael and Sinn Féin? This could be one that you might lose in a Fine Gael heartland. So I suppose uh, there's never an expectation from a government party to win a by-election. There's very few occasions that we ever have. Um, but we have a really, really good candidate. Um, we have a really good campaign that's been going on for maybe about the last three weeks already, even though the writ was only moved yesterday. Um, and we're going to do our level best to make sure that we return uh, James Gagan as a TD for that area. If you were to lose... Well, come to here, <coughs> you know, if, if, if that happens, and we're going to do everything that we can to try and make sure that it doesn't happen and that we do return him, um, we'll have to deal with that. Like the same way as we dealt with the last time we lost a by-election. Um, I have memories of when we did win by-elections and there were, you know, very rare occasions and we, particularly Shane McEntee was, he was a glorious by-election winner because we didn't expect it. So the expectation isn't for us to win, but we want to win and we want to replace Owen Murphy with the same kind of values, the same qualities in a person um, to represent that constituency in Dáil Éireann. And we're going to do our very level best to make sure that we do return James. Matt Carty, how frustrating is it to Sinn Féin to find itself ahead in the polls but with a government that's likely to stick together for at least the next three years before you get a chance to capitalise on that? Well, let's see how long this government lasts. If you consider that, I think it's next week the government is in place a year and when you consider that a, how week hasn't gone by that there hasn't been a de debacle of some description. You, you say um, that, but a majority of the public are satisfied with the job it's doing. 70% are satisfied with the job done on COVID. Well, look at opinion polls, and we all say this, are snapshots in time. But I remember um, in my political life um, as an activist, the first time that the Irish Times actually included Sinn Féin in their poll at all, I think we were at one or two percent. Um, to be at 31%, the largest party um, in, a, in a poll, um, to me, is a huge testament to all the activists, all the representatives of our party over that long period of time. That support is built on many decades of hard work, of representation, of delivery where we can, um, and of standing up for ordinary workers and families. So we know that it has been hard won. We know that we have a job of work to maintain that support and to build upon that support so that we can actually provide and deliver an alternative to the government of chaos. OK, but government of chaos, what we had today, Dr Tony Holohan, the chief medical officer, saying there has been near elimination in the vaccinated public. Would you not concede that the government has done a really good job in rolling out the vaccination programme, protecting the health of the Irish people? We've always not only conceded and welcomed the government when they have done the right thing, we have supported them um, during those junctures. Um, but let's not forget you know the huge difficulties that many communities and families have gone through over the past year and let's not also forget that there are many people still tonight that are out of jobs or that are in financially really difficult um, situations as a result of some of the bad decisions of this government and many of whom um, are now waiting with trepidation for some of those supports that were put in place to be pulled under their feet. Remember that there are people in the Dublin Bay South constituency who are now facing the prospect of potentially an 8% rent hike on some of the most expensive rents in the, in the world. So, you know, to me, 
our job as an opposition party is to put forward a credible alternative vision for a better Ireland, a fairer Ireland, and yes, a united Ireland. That's our role well, and responsibility. Regina, and it appears from all the evidence that the public are increasingly buying into that, and I welcome that. And when the vaccine bonus runs out, are you going to then be stuck with this chaotic label, get criticised for all of the things that you failed to do, particularly if the economy doesn't recover and houses aren't provided? Yeah, so the first thing I'm going to say to you is that any politician that tells you the old trotted outline that, oh, you know, it's only a snapshot in time we don't take them seriously as nonsense. We live for these things. Um, they mean a lot. They test where we are. And so when you're polling well, it's something to take, you know, as a sign of maybe um, a, a good response to the populism that Sinn Féin have been putting out, but it isn't necessarily sustainable. And yes, when we have a trend of a party going down, of course you're going to worry about it and you're going to have to recheck and think about what your offering is. But right now we have a solid support of the government parties of 53%. We have an overall 70% of Irish people who are happy with the way things have been dealt with in the last uh, 16, 18 months. But that's not to say there's an awful lot of people who are not happy. There's an awful lot of people who are dissatisfied. We've had 10,000 people from Donegal and Mayo on the streets this week. We've aviation workers week in, week out. There's an awful lot of people who are not satisfied. And there are hard decisions that have been made and will continue to be made. But we're going to make the decisions in the best interest of the Irish people, in the best interest of the economy, and not promise stuff just because we'd like to be on 31% in the polls. No, well, we don't promise anything. In fact, we're yeah, the only opposition... We're the only opposition party... You make populist promises and policies that can be stood over and can be We're the only opposition party in the world that I am aware of that on an annual basis presents a fully costed alternative budget. That shows the people what we would do if and when we're in government. And Regina may not like it, but it's increasingly popular. In it? Okay, now we want to turn to one segment of stand the stand population, Regina, that may also be a little bit unhappy with the climate action legislation that was brought in last night, the farming lobby. It was passed in by an overwhelming majority of the climate action bill of 129 votes to 10 after a considerable debate. Joining us now via Skype is beef farmer and deputy president of the Irish Farmers Association, Brian Rush. Brian, how concerned are you by the passing of this particular bill? Do you expect that farmers will end up bearing the brunt of the climate measures envisaged by the government? Um, we do, Matt, and I suppose we have three key concerns around this bill. The first concern we'd have is around the issue of carbon leakage. So we know that Irish farmers are among the lowest carbon footprint producers in the world, and that's an indisputable fact. So if output, for some reason, is restricted in Ireland, and, 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 and our products are in high demand, but if output is restricted in Ireland, that, that output will be replaced by a higher carbon footprint producer somewhere else in the world. And we talk regularly about um, the emissions and, and the climate challenge um, as being a global issue. So that is a global issue. And like that, that it makes no sense to replace Irish products with less carbon efficient products. Um, we've another issue around the, the biogenic methane. And while there, it is referenced in the bill and its unique characteristics are referenced, there's no separate targets. And in New Zealand, which has a very, very similar emissions profile to our own, it means that it's an agricultural based economy and, and tourism and doesn't have really any heavy industry. Biogenic methane has separate, uh, separate budgets and, um, and, and it, where it recognises uh, its unique characteristics. And finally, and I suppose one of, the, one of the pieces that, you know, the big issues that are bothering farmers at the minute is that the potential for the agricultural sector to sequester and remove carbon from the atmosphere isn't recognised. 
So farmers, through management practices in their soils, their hedgerows, their grassland, through cropping, through forestry, have the potential to, uh, to absorb and lock up and store carbon. And this bill doesn't recognise that. And it doesn't recognise that when, when, the budgets, when the budgets will be calculated, it doesn't recognise uh, a sector's ability to remove carbon when, when, when given out sectorial budgets. So but those Brian, are three key issues. Indeed, but would you fear that you've already lost the argument that this bill has been passed and it's been passed by an overwhelming majority? Only 10 TDs voted against it. No, we would, I wouldn't accept that we've lost the argument. I suppose we were in Dublin um, yesterday where we met TDs and we pushed the case very hard. We'd feel that this bill was probably rushed through and there might have been, there, there's probably a lack of understanding from a lot of people on what are the real implications and what are the implications for rural Ireland in particular. And TDs that met with us yesterday and spoke to us were, you know, were taken aback with some of the things we were pointing out to them. You know, farmers, we fully accept that we have a massive role to play in the climate challenge. But we also, we also view ourselves as, as part of the solution. Our ability to produce food and deliver for the environment, we're almost unique in the world. And that should be recognised. But this bill only accounts for carbon on one side of the carbon balance sheet. And farmers have to get recognition for what they have done and for what they can do. And farmers listen to, listen to it a lot of people that, you know, we must, that you must do more for the environment and you need to step up more. And I'd argue that farmers are doing that. But here we have a bill that was rushed through that, that doesn't recognise farmers' um, farmers' ability to do that. And not only would that affect farmers and their incomes, but it'll affect everyone's income in the rural, in the rural economy that depends on the agricultural euro. Brian Rush, thank you very much for joining us. Matt Carthy, why did you support it? Because the bill sets out um, the targets that we need to reach as a, as a state. Sinn Féin did put forward a number of what I would have considered to be very pragmatic um, amendments that would have done things like recognise the sequestration that farmers are responsible for and should be credited for, that would enforce um, in 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 um, an obligation on government to carry out an economic and a social and a rural assessment of any decisions that are made to ensure that we don't see what has happened in the past. And this is the difficulty with climate action. We all agree that it needs to happen, but for too many families and workers, their experience of climate action has been increased charges, penalties for you doing things that there are no alternatives for, or in some cases, losing their livelihoods. Um, unfortunately, what we have from government is more of that, um, rather than the type of holistic um, approach that's based on the so-called just transition, which ensures that communities, workers, families, and crucially, farmers are seen as partners in this project as opposed to being enemies. So there is much work to be done. Yesterday was an important stage in post. The government missed an opportunity to accept some of the amendments which would have made it better. Yeah, why didn't but you more take work those needs amendments, to be done. Uh, particularly in relation to things like just transition? The first thing can I say is that um, I want to just acknowledge the concerns that Brian has raised this evening and to say very clearly for the record um, that we believe, not just in government but absolutely in Fine Gael, that farmers don't just reduce carbon in Irish uh, the Irish environment. They have been removing it from the atmosphere for generations and they haven't been given enough credit for that. Second of all, that if we do put such huge restrictions on their production around the targets that have been set, all that will happen is, is that he's right, we will have carbon leakage and we will take in 
poorer produced product from other countries that we have no control over. So we need to be part of the solution and farmers are part of that solution. So do your and Green Party coalition members agree with that analysis? Well, I, that hasn't been teased it. out yet in the national strategy that will be revised every five years. And so when Brian talks about that he didn't see, um, the biogenic methane was definitely defined as a uh, concept and something that has to be mindful. He didn't see the targets in the in the legislation yesterday because they're not there. They will be in the national strategy and in the local government strategy. Now, to come back as to why there was no amendments uh, addressed yesterday, we had months and months and months, probably the longest of any bill that's ever seen, of pre-legged scrutiny on this bill. And all of the suggestions that came, and very healthy suggestions that came from the opposition during those months, since last October till about a couple of weeks ago, were included in the bill. And so that's why it was easy for people to be able to support it, except for obviously the very small number in the Dáil that haven't supported it. And it hasn't passed yet, Matt. It's only coming to the Shannon next week. We'll have at least three, probably maybe four weeks of uh, debate of all of the stages in the Shannon before it finally gets passed and put on our statute books. But to absolutely acknowledge that farmers in this country have been removing carbon from the atmosphere for generations, and we will only solve the problem and get carbon neutral by 2050 with them on board. And that's the only way to keep them on board is for us to recognise their value, their worth, and to work with them. And that's what we're going to do. But that's not, what, that's not what's happening. Myself and Mary Lou Macdonald were meeting organic farmers in County Monaghan today. Rather than the supports that those type of farmers need in order to be able to secure a, a fair price for their product, the government have put in place obstacle after obstacle. That's, you know, that's the realities for too many farmers and that's what needs to change. OK, now as Regina snuck in a mention of the Fine Gael candidate in the Dublin-based South by-election, I'm going to have to read the names of all of those who are contesting the seat. So it is James Gagan for Fine Gael, Deirdre Conroy for Fianna Fáil, Ivana Batchik for Labour, Lynn Boylan for Sinn Féin, Claire Byrne for the Green Party, Sarah Durkin for the Social Democrats, Bridget Purcell for People Before Profit Solidarity, Mairead Tobin for A2, Justin Barrett of the National Party, Renewist Jackie Gilburn and Independents Peter Dooley and Manny Flynn. The deadline for nominations is next Thursday. So we leave it there. Our thanks very much to Brian Rush who was with us and McCarthy. Regina Doherty will be staying with us because after the break, new powers for the Gardaí. Could there be issues of privacy involved? Welcome back. Now, there are new powers being proposed from Garda Shikana under the Police Powers Bill, which would include, for the first time, the right to force people to reveal passwords for phones, laptops and any other electronic devices upon request. Joining us to discuss is Liam Herrick, Executive Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, and Fine Gael's Regina Doherty has stayed with us. Electronic devices like mobile phones, I'm sure people are wondering, would, if, say, there was a street protest, would the Gardaí be entitled to ask somebody participating to hand over their phone, give the password, so that the Gardaí can check what's on the phone? I think the first thing to understand about is what the law is at the moment. Um, at the moment, there's a number of limited circumstances where search warrants can be issued. That's crucial for passwords to be demanded. What's proposed in this bill, and it's one of a number of the most significant provisions in the bill, is a significant expansion of that power. So there'll be a much wider range of potential offences where if a search warrant is issued for the search of a property, that warrant might also include an obligation on a person in that property to provide passwords to electronic devices. OK, but so just take a step back. So if somebody was stopped on the street or whatever, without a search warrant, they can't have their phone it, taken it, it off? It wouldn't them. arise in that circumstance. That's but absolutely the case. If it is part of a search warrant, 
couldn't people argue, well, hold on, there's an awful lot of personal details yeah. on my phone or on my laptop which are in no way relevant to any investigation you might be carrying out? I mean, th that's one of the problems. Um, first of all, this broadening from specific offences, such as, for example, child sexual abuse material or cyber crime or so on, where one can understand where this might be necessary. Um, but also this question of once you get access to a phone, the potential access to a much, much wider range of information. So, for example, that might include privileged material in terms of legal correspondence. It might include uh, journalistic sources. It might include correspondence with elected representatives. Or it might include a huge range of other communications, including intimate and private matters. Could it also not, though, have a lot of criminal things? That it could actually be the key to opening up a Garda investigation to find lots of other criminal activities, ignoring all of those things that are private. Well, you see, at the moment, we have strong judicial oversight that where warrants are issued, that they're, they're, they're issued for very specific purposes. And we're talking here about potentially broadening it. So, for example, it might be possible, and there's a number of court cases around this, where the guards made a compelling case that there was a specific piece of information on a specific device and they needed access to it, and then a judge would come in and oversee to ensure that they didn't look at anything else. Now, you can understand why that might be necessary with regard to serious crime in particular, but the idea that it could be thrown much more broadly is deeply problematic. I mean, there have been cases where the guards have wanted access to electronic devices because they wanted to know the source of information that a journalist was involved in obtaining. That throws up all sorts of constitutional questions. So I think whereas most of this bill is welcome, and it's about clarifying and consolidating the law on police powers, which is absolutely essential. I mean, police powers are the interface between our rights and the power of the state, so it's absolutely crucial. And the Commission of Future Policing found that the law was an absolute mess in this area. There's hundreds of different pieces of legislation. So it's a good exercise. But in this particular area, there's an overreach. And there's also a question about what happens to illegally obtained evidence, where there's a subtle shift here, which I think is going to weaken judicial oversight as well. Regina Tarty, could we have a good idea here that perhaps is being overdone? I actually don't think it's been overdone. And so I welcome, obviously, um, Liam's perspective that uh, this was a recommendation of the Commissioner uh, of Policing Commission to take all of the hundreds of bills, to consolidate them, to make them just clear and straightforward so that, number one, the police knew exactly what their powers were, but to also give them new powers. And one of the new powers is, is to extend the access to information that's either on your phone, your iPad, your computer at home, when it's deemed necessary by a judge through a warrant. And so the warrant has to be specific. It can't just be, come here, you give me your phone and your password, and I'm going to have a scoop through all your photos, all of your, you know, your texts and your emails. That isn't allowed. And yeah, so, OK, and that's not to say... now write the warrants necessarily than going to the Yeah, judiciary. but they, OK, they still have to be relevant to the case. And so you have to be being charged with the crime, and I have to be looking for substantive evidence to back up that charge. And so even if I do find photographs on your phone that, you know, that I should be looking for I can never use them and so the, the, like the law the guards we have to we do this they police by consent we have to trust and this new powers just actually hasn't been asked for by the law reform commission to extend the powers that are there for specific crimes into uh, the criminal justice system for with regard to sexual um, abuse of children and, and women and men and also um, white collar yeah. crime uh, cyber crime which is where most of our uh, criminals are actually but there are also concerns now. in relation to how the Guardi do stop and search and are there any protections here to make sure that people from minorities ethnic backgrounds uh, even on a class basis isn't engaged in I mean what's really welcome in the bill is that where a stop and search occurs that there's an obligation now that it's reported so that's really important in terms of recording the use of power 
Um, but I think on the other hand, there's a missed opportunity. And look, we have time to get this right. What would be really valuable is there's also data collected on who's stopped and searched. Because, as you know, in many countries, there's particular problems about police powers being used against some sections of the population more than others, based on race, also based on age and gender and socioeconomic background. So I think there's an opportunity to do something there. But I think the real difficulty with this bill is a subtle shift, and that is about what happens when the guards break the rules. At the moment, the real protection of all of our rights is judicial oversight. So if the guards obtain evidence in an illegal manner, an unconstitutional manner, a judge in court will exclude it from evidence. They'll make it inadmissible. What's proposed here is that there's just codes of practice and the evidence can't be deemed on that, excluded on okay. that basis. Thank you for that. That is all we have time for. Our programme is available as a podcast and our next news is in Ireland AM tomorrow morning. I'll be back on Today FM tomorrow afternoon. Claire Brock will be back here on Monday night. Have a very good night and have a great weekend. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.